turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. If you've been with us for some time, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews uh, for several months now, and so we've we found ourselves, we're nearly at the end, and uh, just have a little bit of uh, time left here, and man, I hope that this has been rewarding for your spirit. It's been so rewarding for mine, and um, once again, I'm excited. This is a, a really a deviate. This, this sermon is going to be very different from any of the ones that you've heard in this book so far. And usually that's not a good thing because I don't know what that means for me, what I'm going to say. But, uh, and you should be as afraid as I am. Uh, but no, today it's, it's different for a unique reason, and we'll get there in a second. One of the things that you've already heard uh, Chris mention at length, and our music has really been backing up this theme, is that of discipline. And um, you'll see that in, in our title behind me on the screen, that discipline, what comes to our mind maybe when we hear the word discipline are not really good things. They may not be positive things, but discipline is a good thing. It's, it's a gift from God, our Father, right? A Father's discipline. And we're going to see this theme a few times as we walk through our passage this morning. The word discipline is translated discipline in my, my translation, the ESV. The word is used eight times in 11 verses that we're going to look at this morning. I mean, eight times. And when you see a word repeat that many times, it's usually there for a reason. What comes to mind when I say that word, discipline? You may think, please don't say that anymore. I just think of my mom's spankings or my dad bringing a belt my way or whatever it may be. And maybe we do think about spanking or grounding or, or whatever it may be. We think of punishment a lot of the time. I think that that's just our nature is we think of the word punishment when we think of the word discipline. But the goal of discipline is not punishment. The goal of discipline is training. In fact, more, more important to the root of that word discipline is the word training. That's why you can't really say the word disciple without it looking exactly like the word discipline. Because to be a disciple is to be trained by the discipline of someone that you're seeking to learn from, a teacher. Discipline is a corrective measure for the purpose of training. That's why we have prisons, because they're corrective measures for the purpose of moral behavior modification or whatever it may be. It's to train, specifically to, to train to obey or to mold one's character. And it does look a lot like the word disciple, because we as disciples of Jesus are students in training of a teacher. You know what Jesus' disciples' favorite word for him was? Rabbi. Teacher. Because they were disciples of his. They were learners and in training. Today what we're going to see, and the theme that we're going to see in our passage, is that hardships, which we just got done singing about, difficulties, hurts in this life are tools used by God to discipline our faith. And I don't mean punish our faith. I mean train our faith. Hard things, difficulties, sufferings, trials are not just wasted occurrences. They are tools in the hands of our God. And he is a good father. I have, a, I'm a father four times. I've got four children. Brooke, my wife and I have four children, and she's in children's church right now, wrangling a couple of them. Uh, what a gift the children's church workers are to us who want to listen to the sermon, right? Our youngest is Shepherd. He turns uh, one next month, June 29th, um, I think. It's hard to keep them all in track or on track. Shepherd is, 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 is almost one. So you know, I mean, if you've ever hold, held a one-year-old, you know what this is like. When you hold them, they're always leaning. They're wanting to lean away from you. They're always pushing off of you. And I remember when my little sister, who's seven years younger than me, I remember holding her as the seven or eight-year-old when she was an infant, and her pushing, and I was not strong, so she just flipped out of my arms and like fell on her face. And I was, I was a really good brother at a very young age, as you can clearly tell. Um, very good caretaker. So but pushing away is just something a baby does by nature. But the thing is, you can't just let them fall headfirst in the tile flooring and say, see, 
you, you shouldn't do that, shepherd. My, my little 11-month-old, see, that's why you got to trust me, man. And he's just screaming his head off and blood everywhere. I can't do that, right? But here's the thing. A couple of days ago, I was giving him a bath. And he got his lean on again. You know what I'm saying? And I see an opportunity there. I see he's pushing away. And I also see an opportunity for little consequence, but a big lesson. And so he leans forward, and I'm trying to hold him up and bathe this kid, and he's strong-willed. I think he gets that from his mom. So he's, he's very strong-willed, and so I just say, you know what? Fine. And so I let go, and he just splashes his face in the water, and he comes up, <laughs> you know, coughing, and obviously he's okay, but I let that be a lesson. I was like, I'm holding you back for a reason, and honestly, he got the picture because he hasn't done it again since. Uh, he got it, he's, he's still getting his lean on outside of the bath, but we'll, we'll take that, you know, at a different time. The thing is, there are times as a father, and you know this if you're a parent as well, or just someone that is giving instruction, that I allow my children to suffer hardship for the sake of making them better. When you take training wheels off of a bike, there's probably going to be a spill, but it's to make them better, even if there is temporary pain. If your child fails a test, next time, maybe they'll study. If they're late for school, maybe next time they won't stay up so late. And you let them fail of small consequence because you want to train them. You want to discipline them. You see what I'm saying? It's a lesson that we all know as people who have given care for those that are younger than us, children, or maybe your own children. And I'm not always the best at it, and it often backfires. I should give you more stories, but I won't for the sake of time. But God's discipline is always perfect. Always. And every hardship or trial that you encounter is an instrument of training, of discipline, in the hands of a perfect father. And we're going to lean pretty heavily on this verse that's not in Hebrews today, but it's Romans 8, 28 that you may know that says, and we know that for those who love God, those are his, how many things work? Everything. All things that happen in your life work together for your good. For your good. Everything. Even the hard things are there for your and my good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So with that in mind, and by the way, just on the heels of Hebrews 11 that talked about people like Moses and others, Abraham, Sarah, who went through very hard things, and they were called to trust that God is still in control and he's working for their good, Let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 13. Hebrews 12, 3 through 13. It says this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, his suffering, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. He's obviously comparing to Jesus. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed." Again, just to recap, we looked at this hall of faith last week in chapter 11 that 
all these people were called to trust God in difficult times and sometimes even suffering in trials. Moses is one of those. And just to recap, you can flip back a page if you want, but in Hebrews chapter 11, 24 through 27, just consider the case of Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he has was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, comfort, right? Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, the suffering, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, the comfort. For he was looking to the reward. And this verse is great. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What does that mean? Moses had clear vision. He wasn't afraid of the king that he could see. He feared God who was invisible. His suffering produced endurance, and endurance produced discipline and maturity. So what the author of Hebrews does is he moves on from all these figures in Hebrews 11, and then he moves forward to the ultimate example of faithful suffering who is Jesus. That's why he says here in verses 3 and 4, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Perfect obedience, too. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you haven't done what he's done, is what he's saying. You haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You haven't been martyrs like Jesus essentially has been. And when he says the words in, in verse 3, consider him, that verb, consider Jesus, it means to hold him up as the model and to constantly look to him for inspiration and encouragement. What do we see in Jesus? We see the ultimate suffering servant, right? The one who got the greatest prize because he was faithful even to the end. He suffered but pressed on with eyes on the reward. That's why it says right before that in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he endure? The cross, despising the shame. And what is the reward? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the message from the author of Hebrews is that you also should also not grow weary, should not grow faint-hearted. The message is that God is disciplining you, not punishing, but training you through every hardship and difficulty that you encounter to produce faith and commendation, his approval. And the reason he does it, huge theme here, we've already been singing about it, is because he loves us. He loves us as sons, sons and daughters, but he uses the word sons here because it implies the heir, someone to receive. Look at verse 5. This is sort of an introductory verse, and we'll get to sort of like an outline, and I'm going to tell you where we're going here in just a second. Verse 5 begins, this is the first half, it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation, so he's calling to their scriptures, their Bible, the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Pause for just a moment there. This is an introductory verse, it's sort of like a thesis statement. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, sons of the Father? What the author of Hebrews is saying is that you were addressed as sons, therefore you should, get this, expect and embrace a father-son relationship from the father. That's obvious, right? If you're a son, then you should expect and embrace that sort of relationship with God. This is where the passage gets interesting. And I love being, I mean, I love teaching the Bible, and I love what the author of Hebrews does here. Because what he essentially does is, he preaches. I've told you already that this letter is a sermonic letter. It's written like a long sermon, right? Um, you're like, yeah, I know something about long sermons. You did one last week. Yeah, get over it. Okay, so in this passage, what do I do every week? I give you an introduction. I read a passage. I explain the passage. I illustrate the passage. And then I apply it to your life and why it matters. That's exactly the formula that the author of Hebrews uses in these 11 verses. He's introduced the passage in verse 5, the first part. 
Now he's going to give it to us. In this little indented section, he provides his text, his passage of Scripture. He's going to read it to them, essentially, and then he's going to explain it, illustrate it, and apply it. So if you're taking notes this morning, and what's going to be on the screen now is exactly that. Our outline is going to be the author of Hebrews' outline. Go ahead and throw that up there if you don't mind, Greg. So his sermon structure is going to be our structure this morning. And the first thing that he gives us is a passage. And his passage is Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Now, instead of turning to Proverbs and looking at that, you don't have to. I mean, he puts it right here. He kind of hyperlinks it in his Bible, which would be the, something called the Septuagint. It's just the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so he takes his Bible, his Old Testament, and he quotes this passage of Scripture from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And I'll just read it. It says, my son, Do not regard, this is verse 5, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, corrected by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, which is what this quote is from, Solomon is warning his son not to make light of the Lord's discipline, not to scorn God's discipline because discipline is a sign of sonship, of God's love. And so discipline in the context of the proverb is not a sign of God's anger or punishment, but of his favor and acceptance. I cannot get off this. I mean, this is really important. God's discipline is not saying, he's mad at me. He's being ugly to me. He just wants me to suffer. No, no, no. God is training, loving, reproving, yes, correcting, but it's a sign of his favor. What would be worse? A father that did not care to discipline or a father that cared enough to discipline? The discipline is a good thing. And the same is true here in Hebrews as is in Proverbs 3. And so the explanation is what comes next. And so if you're taking notes, the next thing is explanation. His explanation is that trials belong in a bigger picture. Trials are in a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is discipline. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. So I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I'm just explaining exactly what we see in the text. His explanation of that Proverbs passage is that trials belong in a bigger picture. They're not isolated occurrences. They exist to discipline. And by the way, again, when I say that trials are there to discipline, I don't mean they're to punish. Like if you're going through something hard right now, God isn't punishing you. We'll get there in a moment. God has poured out every bit of punishment you deserve on one guy, and it ain't you. It's Jesus. We'll get there at the end of our time. God doesn't punish us. He does discipline us. And that's what we see here. I don't mean that God doesn't bring hard things as a way of punishing us, though hard things may come by consequence of sin and so forth and so on. Rather, we should think of it this way. Think of all the people who endured hardship for their training and discipline in Hebrews 11, for example. Not because God was giving them a divine spanking. Think about Abraham or Ur. Go to, go to this, uh, this land that I'm promising to give you. You go there, Abraham. And Abraham went. He was faithful, and he went through hardship. Abraham wants you to sacrifice your son Isaac. Did Abraham do anything to deserve that? Was, he, was there a pattern of sin that we're told about? Nope. God says, I'm testing your faith. This is a hardship. I'm making you better. I'm training you to be greater for my sake. Moses suffering for obedience, not disobedience. David, hunted by Saul for coming and being given the throne that God commanded him. Did David do anything wrong before that that we're told? No. And yet he endured hardship and suffering. This is what I mean. Trials may come by obedience or disobedience. You may suffer consequences because of your sin and trials because of your sin. But it's not cause and effect. 
Sometimes we're obedient and we suffer. Sometimes we're disobedient and we suffer. The point is that God doesn't waste trials, but uses them to train our faith, discipline our faith and endurance. And again, I'm not making those words happen. They're right here. Look at verses 7 and 8. It goes on. So this is his explanation. He moves on from his passage. Here's his explanation. It is for discipline, training, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. What it says there is, it is for discipline that you have to endure. To be honest, I'm not a huge fan of that translation. That verb can be taken also as an imperative, and that doesn't make sense. All that that simply means is a better translation of that statement is probably endure suffering as discipline, a command, an instruction. Endure suffering as a form of God's discipline. The presence of difficulty in your and my life, in other words, is evidence that God loves you, not hates you, not as rejecting you, but embraces you and loves you as his child. So let's get to the fun part. Now he's going to illustrate it. So the third thing is his illustration, and his illustration is good parenting. His illustration is good parenting, which we're going to see now in verse uh, 9. So notice that it says something about respecting good parents here. I think that this is interesting because nothing's changed. We, we think it's a good thing when parents discipline their children in some way, trains them, right? Verse 9 says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? So he's kind of comparing. He says, we look at a, a father who disciplines and trains and is, is molding their kids and says, good dad, right? So that's good father. Well, should we not say the same thing about our father in heaven? I remember when I was a kid, my parents, uh, they, they did spank us, and, and, you know, we can get it off in the weeds some other time. But they, they disciplined us, and sometimes, you know, when we were small, it would be like a spanking. By the way, they didn't abuse us. They didn't leave lasting marks on us. We didn't need CPS called on us, nothing like that. They were doing the very best that they could to parent us, and so they did choose to, to spank us. I don't resent them for it. I appreciate them for it. But I remember when I was a kid, them saying, I have to spank you because I love you, and me thinking, you're nuts. You know what I'm saying? I was like, okay, psycho. Uh, bad way of showing it. Let's try a hug, right? But I remember them saying that and thinking, I have to spank you because I love you, but guess what I'd be saying to my son sometimes? The same thing. But this is a form of my love for you, and you may not understand it right now. Hello, do you guys hear this relationship between our Father and Heaven? You may not understand it right now, but this discipline is for your good. And I remember then thinking, what? But now thinking, I know that I needed every single one of them. And more, probably, because I was pretty good at hiding some stuff. They were trying to train me into becoming a better and growing young man. You may have heard the proverb, and, and this is more of a modern proverb to us, that says, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. Have you guys heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Spare the rod, spoil the child. So that's sort of, it's not literally ver word for word what the proverb says, but it's sort of a paraphrase of this. It's Proverbs 13, 24. It says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. I mean, does that not sound exactly like it was ripped from these pages in Hebrews? It does, right? I'm going to read it again. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Whoever withholds discipline doesn't care for him. Is what he says. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline. Guys, this is very important. When I say the word discipline in this way, discipline should never, ever be done out of anger. Ever. Discipline should never be done out of anger. What does it say here? 
It's not done out of anger. Discipline is always done out of what? Say it. Love. That's right. Don't get it twisted. Somebody's going to misquote me today. Discipline is always done out of love, not out of anger, certainly not out of wrath. The principle is that you do more harm by not having discipline in the home than having it. You think, well, I don't want to inflict pain. No, you're inflicting more lasting pain by not than the temporary pain by giving it. Whether it's spanking or grounding or putting in time out or taking away privileges, whatever it is. Without getting off in the weeds, once again here, a simple principle is that if a parent refuses to discipline a rebellious, disrespectful, hurtful child, that child will grow accustomed to getting his own way, developing a sense of entitlement, not gratitude, of meanness, not kindness, of selfishness, not generosity. In paraphrase, a child without discipline becomes a spoiled brat. And we all know it. You better not be thinking about anybody. But it's true. We know that, right? It's, it's not rocket science. I mean, even the secular world will tell you, and they may disagree on the method, but we all agree on the fact that if there are no boundaries, there's no boundaries. And it trains up kids that have no shaping, molding, discipline. You see what I'm saying? There's a place for discipline in children. The illustration, in other words, of the author is simply that to use this example to talk about it. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen 15 says, folly, means foolishness, is bound up in the heart of a child. You may be thinking, yes, yeah, especially mine. <laughs> but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. You want to make a child wise? Discipline the child. Train them. That's why verse 9 says, we, I'm paraphrasing, that we respect parents who do the right thing, even if it's hard, because it's hard. Well, you hear that phrase from your parents, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And again, one of those that I was thinking, you're nuts. Well, I'll tell you what, if that's true, why don't you give me the, the, the belt? Well, we'll just try it, you know? Obviously, we know what I mean by that. Again, the lasting harm done by the absence of discipline is greater than the temporary harm of discipline because we are training them to become mature, responsible, godly adults. And there are several examples of this. When it comes to responsibility, your child gets a speeding ticket, you say, okay, it's going to come out of your allowance. Why? Because you're avoiding them becoming an irresponsible, self-entitled little jerk when they grow up and say, everything's always been taken care of for me. When it comes to respect, you want to teach them respect at a young age so that, I don't know, they'll have a boss that actually wants to hire them, an authority figure that they can respect, right? We teach them how to make good choices because we want them to, right now, pick good friends, but one day pick a good spouse, right? because we're training them and molding them. Their own self-discipline, you teach boundaries now, you, teach, you don't give them all the candy they want, you, you teach a diet practice now because you don't want them to, be, to have heart disease by the time they're 40. You teach them time management now and saying, no, we're gonna say no to screen time. Why, I wanna have fun, you don't want me to have fun. No, I'm trying to teach you that there needs to be boundaries in your life because I don't want you to be a parent like me one day and have your face planted in the screen while your kid's thinking, why don't you love me? It all starts as a little kid and molding and training. Shiloh, our daughter, she's, she's almost seven. She loves being around people. Like this is like her favorite thing ever. Going to school, she was so heartbroken that she couldn't go to school anymore because it's summer. Come on. Like you're thinking, Caleb, you need to do a better job training your children because that's a good thing to be. Anyway, so she hates being, or she, she loves being around people and she hates being alone. And so when her siblings go and have rest time, we say, you've got to be alone and figure it out. Do something to entertain yourself. You don't have to go nap, but just be okay. And she says, oh, can I just go play with my friends? Oh, can I go play with Zion? Oh, can I do this? We think, girl, you've got to learn to be alone. And you may think, man, that's really? If she can't be alone now, 
what happens when she's codependent later? You see what I'm saying? Does she just go become depressed because she's single at 25, 30? You see what I'm saying? I'm not getting on a soapbox. My point is that discipline in the home matters. We teach rules and social norms now. And it may be like right now with your five-year-old, it may be, oh, kids say the darnest things. But as an adult, they need to know how to function in society. It starts young. Just the other day, uh, Brooke and the kids, I was at work, and Brooke and the kids were going for a walk, riding their scooters in the neighborhood. We live in a subdivision. People are all around, and there was like a fence or something being built. There were construction workers, the neighbors around. I mean, it's, it's just public life, you know. And Zion just kind of gets off a scooter right there in the street, right on the side of the road, drops his pants to his ankles, and just relieves himself. In front of the neighbor's houses, in front of the construction workers, he didn't even care. And Brooke just runs up and says, Zion, she didn't spank him, because, I mean, he doesn't know, right? But just because she didn't spank him doesn't mean she didn't discipline him. I don't mean, she didn't even punish him. But she went up and said, as an opportunity to discipline, here's a word of correction, a gentle word of reproof, and saying, you can't do that. (laughs) You can't do that. And I know that's silly, but Brooke simply, again, gently, and not not even a punishment, but just a discipline, a training by saying, I'm gonna expose your wrongdoing, which ironically was his being exposed. I don't know. And he felt a little bit embarrassed and a little bit ashamed. And you think, oh, that's cruel. No, it's not. Because a little bit of shame and a little bit of embarrassment now may keep him from doing it as a 19-year-old kid and getting a sex offender charge. And I know that may sound like it's outrageous. It's not. Those things start and you're molding and you're training. And that's what God does to us. Good parents know the value of discipline, and grown adults know the retrospective value of their own discipline. It helps you to navigate life's challenges more effectively because you are better equipped. So the question then, come back to it. Is it loving or unloving to withhold discipline? The answer should be obvious, right? The greater concern would be a life without discipline, not a life with it. And so I know I've taken this good illustration, and I've really expanded it greatly, but I want you to see it because the author of Hebrews is simply saying, now I've made the point I'm going to tell you what my point is, why it matters to your life. You need discipline. God is doing something for your good in your own suffering and the hardship. It makes you feel uncomfortable. It's painful now, but there is a reason for it. And there's two applications to take away from it. The first one is this, to trust that God isn't wasting my trials. To trust that God isn't wasting my trials. God knows what he's doing. You know what you're doing with your kids, right? Sometimes I feel you on that one. Don't you think that God's a better parent than you are? I mean, if you and your fallen mind can figure it out, don't you know that God is really, really good at parenting his kids? He's really good. We have a good father who's really good at parenting us. He doesn't waste our trials. He teaches us in the middle of them. Sometimes you've got to let your kid fail to teach them, right? You've got to let them fall. You've got to let them suffer hurt in order to teach them. And we talked about that earlier with my kid dipping his face in the bathtub, so I won't go there again. But look at verses 10 and 11. It says, For they disciplined us, earthly fathers, for a short time, as it seemed best to them. So they did the best they could. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, perfectly, that we may share his holiness. There's a big picture here, right? For the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. No one just wants it, right? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, if flawed human fathers use discipline to train, will not our infallible heavenly father do this? He does not waste your suffering. He does not waste your trials. And he does not waste your pain. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to hear me say one more thing. Not all things are good. Those sufferings, trials, pains, I'm not saying they're good. Not all things are good, but all things are for the good of those who love God. This doesn't mean that we should be thankful for tumors and cancer. It doesn't mean that we should be thankful for tragedies or divorces, for unfaithful spouses. We shouldn't be thankful for car accidents and insurmountable bills, injuries, etc. Nor should we ask God for and pray for those things. Yet even in those situations, understand and trust that God is working for our good. He is sharpening and maturing and growing and training our faith, not harming it. So the application is, what do we do in hardship? I think that this guy would say that we should ask ourselves some questions. How is God strengthening me through this? How is he trying to sharpen me and make me stronger through this? What am I to learn? Where is my faith to grow in this? And some of you guys, when we sang those songs a minute ago, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With everything that I'm able, I'm going to sing of the goodness of God. As your pastor, most of you, some of you, have been very vulnerable with me. I can just hear your voices behind me. I hear a lot of pain in those voices. I mean, truly. And I can't see your tears. And maybe you're bottling them up. But y'all, I have a hard time singing that song without tears in my eyes. Because it's this wrestling match of like, I hate discipline. But also I have a good father. I hate the loss, but I trust God. If your world is crashing down, maybe he's teaching you to just simply say, this world is not my home. If you experience loss, maybe it's simply your challenge and something you learn is that he's still good. When you're without, God, you're enough. When you're lonely, Maybe it's to just simply say he cares for me. He cares for me. No one else, he does, that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. When you have nowhere to turn, maybe it's time for you to learn that on him only do you depend. Only. How will you know the strength of your anchor if you never find yourself in a storm? How will you know God's sufficiency if you never lack? How will you know God's peace if you never find yourself in a season of unrest? Guys, God isn't harming you. He is training you. He is preparing you. And he's making you better. It's evidence of his love, not his apathy. It's not his apathy. It's his love. You're his kid. And he's a perfect father, a good father. You'd want the same for your children. Even if it meant that they had to go through hard things to get to the other side, can you trust God? Is he good? Is he? Amen, he is. That's the first thing that I think the author of Hebrews wants us to see, application-wise. The second thing is that we need to be disciplined to run with renewed strength and perspective. I mean, truly, running with renewed strength and perspective, what I just said, uh, that's not new to you. I mean, you know that, but don't you know that we need sort of a, a, a kick in the pants to be reminded of these things, don't we? I mean, we need to be reminded that God is our strength, not anything here. 
That God is our security, not anything here. That God is our refuge and strength, not anything here that we can build. Those are reminders. And I'm not telling you anything new, but they're good reminders that we need to run with renewed strength. And that is a renewed perspective, I'd say. At the end of verse 11, and I love this, man. This is so neat. At the end of verse 11, it says, again, verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. He uses that word discipline there. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That word trained may even be translated discipline in your Bible. It's often translated discipline, but it's a different Greek word. The literal word is different. The word for discipline there, the one that we've been reading this whole time, is paideon. It's, it's a word that means like, like child training, which makes sense. That's what he's been talking about this whole time is child training, raising children. But here that word trained, which is often tra- translated disi- discipline, is not the same word as child training. It's a different word. It's gymnazo. What does that sound like? Gymnasium, right? Gym. And it's the same word that we get the word gymnasium from. So when it says trained here, that we've been trained by his discipline, you know what it means? It means the discipline makes us stronger. It's like hitting the weights. One is like, like talking to a child. But the word trained is like doing some weight training, getting your endurance up and running on a track or a treadmill. So now, returning to his endurance or running metaphor, which we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, right? Running the race with endurance. Look at verse 12, thinking of that metaphor. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Lift your, so your arms are, are, are heavy, your, your knees are weak. What does that sound like? Knees weak, arms are heavy. Caught you. I caught you. I caught you guys. If you don't get it, then good. You're, you're walking with the Lord. Um, those are, <laughs> those are uh, rap song lyrics. Just ignore that. Anyway. M&M, right? No, no Skittles up in here. So verse 12 says, therefore lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. I mean, it literally means, no kidding, knees weak, arms are heavy. That's what he's saying. You, I'm not joking now. I'm being serious. It literally means your, your arms are heavy and your knees are weak. You guys ever actually gone outside and run every once in a while? You get tired after a while and you get weary and truly you're like, man, I'm huffing it. My arms really are feeling heavy and my knees are starting to feel weak. And the, the, the older I get, those things kind of seem to expedite a little bit. But the author is not alluding to Eminem. He's alluding to Isaiah 35.3. It's clearly alluded to here because he almost directly quotes it. And Isaiah 35.3 says, or maybe it's 35.4 actually, I think. It says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. There it is. In Old Testament context, what's that referring to? Isaiah is referring to the coming kingdom for a suffering people that were in exile. They're in Babylon. And he's saying, man, look forward. Look forward to the days that God is going to deliver you. Lift up your drooping arms. Strengthen your weak knees. Press on. God is in control. That's what he's saying. He's reminding them that even in their suffering in Babylon, God is in control and he loves his own. Don't you see the parallel here between people away from home in Babylon that God is one day going to deliver and people, Christians, that are away from home, exiles here on earth, that are longing for our eternal home. The message is simple, the same as it was for them. Lift your drooping arms, strengthen your knees, and keep going. Hang in there. Salvation is coming. He then goes in verse 13 and says, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, means dislocated, but rather be healed. Don't be disabled, don't be dislocated. He says, 
Make straight paths. Prevent those things from happening. You don't want to dislocate something. Make sure your path is clear. I mean, for a clear path, you remove obstacles. And again, uh, you ever run on streets in Meridian? There's a few potholes in the streets of Meridian, right? Uh, but if you step, man, you, can you imagine stepping on the side of a pothole when you're going full strength and putting all your weight down? What's going to happen? Ouch is going to happen, right? You're going to roll your ankle, maybe even pop something out. I mean, really could hurt yourself. You need to be mindful of the path that is in front of you if you're running, right? You're not running with your eyes closed. You're not running on, on rocks and slopes and, and potholes and all kinds of things that could mess up your feet. His point is avoid dangerous spots and potholes where you could twist an ankle or trip. Here's the point, that we must arrange our lives as best we can so that sin's opportunities to ensnare us are greatly reduced. Don't be a fool. They'll make choices that put you in harm's way. And look, at this. at some point, you can't avoid, you can just put yourself in a plastic bubble, right? You're in the world. You're not of the world, but you're in the world, and there are opportunities all over the place to sin. But you guys know what I mean. You're in control of a whole lot of the slippery slopes, aren't you? You may need to delete that app because you know it's a, a, a cause for sexual temptation. You may need to reconfigure a friendship because you know that it's a slippery slope of temptation. Some of you guys need to dump the girl or the guy because you know that that sin that you're living in with them, it needs to go. We can be wise and look at our path in front of us and say, it's filled with potholes and I'm gonna mess up my ankles. Surround yourself with people, places, and things that build you up, not trip you up. Surround yourself with people, places, and things that build you up not trip you up, that are part of your training, not your turmoil? The good questions here. Are the people in your life more regularly building you up or are they more regularly tripping you up? Are the things that fill your calendar fueling your perseverance or draining it? Are the things in your life motivating your race or distracting you from it? Will this message even, this sermon, be a forgotten message or a tool in the hand meant for your training? I'm not talking about you memorizing every word that I say, but the theme that we're talking about here is absolutely vital if you want to run a race of endurance. Will you trust that God isn't wasting your trials? Will you run with renewed strength and perspective? You know, the discouraging thing about this race of life, the Christian life, is that often we're reminded that we stink at it. I'm a lot better at running in, like, my physical, real-life body than I am running the Christian life. A whole lot better. And I'm pretty bad at running. Guys, my life is plagued with sin. It's plagued with weakness. I'm forgetful. I procrastinate. The disciplines slip so often. I have so little self-control at times. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir. Quick self-evaluation. When we, when we sang just a moment ago about the goodness of God, His goodness is running after me. His grace is chasing us. That really shook me up, man. And the reason why is because I know just how rotten I am. I know that I deserve none of that stuff. And if you're honest with yourself, you're rotten too. We fail, man. So often we fail. 
The reason I say that, I started with a passage from Romans 8, 28. Talking about God working all things for our good. There's another verse that precedes it in Romans 8, chapter, or Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Remember, as we fail so often, this verse is just balm for the soul. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Come on, man. That's why that song really blew up my world. No condemnation. Amen. That's why I said earlier that discipline can shape and train, but you've got to be given perspective that discipline, God's discipline is not punishment. Punishment. Every ounce of it was poured out at Calvary. Punishment is not reserved for you any longer, but by the grace and mercy of God, punishment was poured out on his son Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that we can come in here, and although we stink at the race, we can keep moving forward because at the end of the day, we're not running, we're being carried. And God is the one carrying us. It is an endeavor not of our own personal strength. It is trusting in the strength of the one who is lifting our arms and strengthening our knees. Because at the end of the day, we have nothing to stand on except for the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus the Christ. And today, you may stand condemned before a holy God because you've never, you've been running this race and you think, I can just try harder. I can do morality. I can be in the church, be the, be the church guy. I can work on these things and work on my relationships. I can, in fact, I just work at it. If you are not clinging to Jesus today, one day you will be eternally separated from him. But I got good news, man. You are in good company of people who fall short of the glory of God. And the only saving grace that we have is not our merit and our ability to run. It is the fact that we trust in the finished work of Jesus. When he said, it is finished. And that we can't gain merit with God. He bestowed it upon us. Praise God. We got a good father. And so your life could be nothing but rags the rest of your life. And he will have given you everything forevermore. Today, Will you join me in declaring to our God, our Father, that we trust his parenting? That you trust that even the hard things are for your good. Tomorrow, next week, a month from now, trust his sovereign parenting and cling to the only hope that you have, his sacrifice. You know, today's Memorial Day weekend. And it's one of these times that we recognize and remember that freedom comes at a price. Freedom comes at a price. Freedom comes at a price. We should hammer that into our foreheads. Freedom comes at a price. It will make us a better country, but I'm going to tell you something. It will make you a better Christian. To understand that your freedom from sin, from the wages of sin, it came at a price. You just didn't have to pay it. We praise God. And so today, I pray, man, that you will give up the fight, cling to Jesus as the founder and finisher of your faith.